Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We're going to spend the hour today talking about the presidential contest in 2016 in the context of the media. How are the media handling the coverage of the presidential contest? Are we doing a good job? Are we doing a fair job? Are we doing the things that help voters make up their minds and understand the issues. Uh, all hour this hour, we'll be talking about that subject with a number of different people. And if you want to join the conversation, again, this week, we are not on the phones, but we are on Facebook and on Twitter. Go to the WDET page on Facebook and uh, post your comments. We'll work them into the conversation or go to Twitter and hashtag us at Detroit Today and we can do the same. Uh, during this strange election cycle, there's been a third party that received a lot of criticism along with Democrat Hillary Clinton and Republican Donald Trump. The media, how have we been doing in covering these candidates and their respective issues? We're, again, going to spend the hour talking about that, and we're going to talk about the satirical media. How have they approached this election? How have they taken something that is itself so anomalous and strange and made it into sort of humor? How do you make fun of something that sort of is making fun of itself. Last week, a strange thing happened. Trump held a press conference concerning his birther conspiracy of President Obama, and he held the news event at his new hotel in Washington, D.C. After making a brief statement, he turned to take the television cameras on a tour of the new hotel grounds. Outraged and feeling like they'd been played, the reporters in the press pool voted to unilaterally erase the footage of the hotel from their cameras. This was kind of unprecedented, although if you think back to Donald Trump's uh, press conference during the primaries where he showed off Trump products like uh, Trump Steaks and Trump Magazine, uh, it is something that we have seen coming for a while in this uh, weird election cycle. Uh, but the press, uh, the press's reaction here was different, and it showed that the press pool is reaching sort of a breaking point, I think, in trying to cover Donald Trump and the way that he is behaving. So joining me now to talk about media coverage of this election is Lee Wilkins, professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State University, and Rebecca Sinderbrand, political editor at The Washington Post. Lee and Rebecca, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Rebecca, let's uh, let's let's start with you. Uh, uh, talk about how odd it has been to try to cover Donald Trump uh, this cycle because he's such a different candidate than we have seen before, and he does things that most candidates won't do. He says things that a lot of candidates in the past have seen uh, reserved from saying, and and he has blurred these lines between. Uh, sort of a political campaign and an advertising campaign for Trump the brand. Uh, I, I know lots of political reporters who've spent years, you know, on those campaign buses doing this. And uh, the, the few that I've been able to talk to this cycle have said this is something different. And, and it does challenge the way they approach the job and the way they think about what the job should be. Uh, tell, tell us from your seat how all that looks. Well, you know, the other thing, of course, is not only does he do things that candidates don't, he also 
doesn't do certain things that candidates have traditionally done. It's not written in the Constitution that a presidential candidate has to have a pool with them at all times or that they should travel on the campaign plane with the candidate or that he should hold press conferences. Um, But candidates do that. Um, And Hillary Clinton has started to do press conferences again after a long uh, pause. And Donald Trump has stopped doing them. He hasn't done one since July. He is the only candidate in modern history to not travel with his press pool, to not have them on his plane, um, to basically not be available to them at this point. So, you know, that's a major concern and something that news organizations are constantly protesting. But there's no law that you can point to to force a candidate to be more transparent on that front. Um, You know, there's two different tracks for presidential coverage. Um, Both of them are very important. You can't have one without the other. The first takes place really far from the campaign trail. Um, It is our investigative reporters and editors who are doing lots of digging. Um, They're not necessarily dealing with a candidate except to get reaction to what they've uncovered far from the trail, looking into his past, his business dealings, his connections, his past positions, his policy statements. And then you have the people who travel with the candidate. Um, and it's important because you want to be able to ask him questions directly, specifically for someone like Donald Trump. Many of his surrogates, when they've been asked about his positions, have said, well, you know, you'll have to ask him about that. But of course, it is impossible to ask him about that. <laughs> right. So um, so it's very it's critically important. And it's something that reporters will continue to push for. And to the extent that there are agreements with the campaign. So, for instance, one of the agreements that people have pushed for with the campaign and gotten is that there would be an editorial presence um, whenever the candidate would go on a tour like that where there were cameras. It's not a photo op. You have to have a reporter with you who can ask questions. They violated that agreement, and that's why um, that footage was erased. Yeah. Uh, If anyone has been sort of paying attention to the, the Post and the Times over the last several months, uh, I, I feel like there has been this really concerted effort to, especially on Sundays, uh, take a, a, a deeper look at Donald Trump in particular. And there have been there have been deep stories also about Hillary Clinton and some of the issues yeah. with her campaign. But but Trump in particular, because he's such a complicated uh, figure, uh, has has generated and and has been very cagey about sort of uh, his background and some of the things that he's done. He's generated this sort of weekly narrative about uh, another piece of his uh, his background. So, for instance, uh, this Sunday, the New York Times lead story was about uh, how he sort of has built his wealth, uh, his businesses on the back of tax breaks, for instance. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was looking uh, more deeply into his tax returns or trying to figure out what his tax returns were. Uh, it, those two um, seem anomalous in in a, in a way. I mean, I don't remember uh, Mitt Romney, for instance, uh, facing that same kind of deep coverage, or John McCain, uh, and of course they're very different candidates. But but talk about in the newsroom there at the Post how these stories take shape in the context of this campaign and how that may be different from what we've seen before. Oh, right. You know, he's not a traditional candidate. With a traditional candidate, um, generally there's someone who's been in politics for a while who's been releasing their tax returns if they're an elected official, um, or at least some of the tax returns. Yep, I think we've uh, lost Rebecca there. 
All right, we're going to try to get her back uh, to continue talking about uh, what's going on at the Washington Post uh, in this election cycle. Uh, but I've got Lee Wilkins here, uh, professor and chair of the Department of Communications, Wayne State University. We have talked before about this this campaign cycle and how odd it is, how strange uh, things have sort of unfolded. Um, uh, respond to some of the things that Rebecca was talking about with the way that the newsrooms have to sort of think of this in different terms. One of the things that Trump has done is he's confronted us with some of our own internal journalistic contradictions that most of the time we don't have to worry about too much. So when Rebecca's talking about there need to be reporters with him when he's doing events, when he's taking tours, all that sort of stuff, that's the notion of getting a candidate on the record. And part of being there is literally to see whether something peculiar, odd, whatever definition you want to use of newsworthy happens and to get the candidate on the record about that. The other side of what the Post and the New York Times um, and some of the news magazines are now starting to do is sort of the the more long-form, the more investigative, the more in-depth work. And historically in newsrooms, those have always been done by two different parts of the newsrooms. Uh, There's an insider baseball reason for that. If you're a beat reporter and you have cultivated these sources, the last thing that you want to do is to, um, the journalistic term is burn them, is to burn them by investigating them so that they'll never talk to you again and you won't get any more news. So bigger news organizations, you have the daily beat reporter, the on the record sort of stuff that Rebecca was referring to. And then you have the investigative, more in-depth stuff. And it's not that those lines are never crossed, but bigger newsrooms sort of staff them differently. The thing that Trump has done, I think, is, is reminded us that when we tell the American public we're objective, that means different things to different people. Objectivity, I think, a courtesy of Fox tends to be fair and balanced. If if I'm writing a story and Stephen, you say one thing and I say something different, the objective way to do it is to first quote you and then quote me. In journalism school, we don't teach objectivity that way. That's pretty hard to pull off, especially sure. when things get complicated. We do teach we do teach objectivity as a process. I, and by that, what I mean is I can objectively ask every question of every single person I come to. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be 90 of them who give me one answer and 10 of them who give me another answer. I should be reporting the fact that there are 90 people over here who say this and 10 people here over who say that, not that the 90 people are exactly equal to the 10 people, especially on issues of economic controversy, scientific controversy, public policy, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, Rebecca Senderbrand is back with us. Uh, She's a political editor at the Washington Post. Uh, uh, Rebecca Lee just now was talking about this this challenge uh, to the sort of he said, she said type of reporting uh, in in the political context and the special challenge that this particular – uh, campaign poses to that. I mean, you have one candidate whose whose knowledge of or fidelity to truth uh, and the facts is really different from what we've seen in other in other candidates, and so it becomes, I think, really difficult for news outlets to to, to even appear to be quote unquote fair or balanced in covering that candidate because what he's saying is so unusual and in some cases so outlandish. Uh, Talk about how you guys uh, sort of wrestle with that in the post-newsroom. 
And of course, we're very cognizant of the fact that um, in many instances, uh, Donald Trump is using the press for fundraising purposes. So in some sense, there is, you know, the feeling that perhaps he's trying to draw a strong reaction um, from the media uh, against him that he can use to his advantage on that front. And so very conscious of not wanting to be some sort of a a prop if that indeed is the case. Um, Also wanting to be you want to be fair. Um, but he has posed a challenge, and yeah. uh, our fact-checking team has been working overtime for a very, <laughs> We've very long time. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and, and yeah, go so, ahead. You know, it, it's one of those things where it, it, one of the, the kind of frustrating things for some people is, you know, we have a lot of this information out there. People have been doing a lot of work for a really long time. So a lot of the time when, when someone asks, why are you not kind of fact-checking this issue or that issue, we have to say, well, you know, have you checked the front page today or have you, <laughs> you Googled any of our coverage? It's out there. I think the frustration a lot of people feel is that um, it's not getting the sort of attention from others, the sort of reaction from other voters that, that they believe or think that it, that it should be getting. And that, that's not something that we can necessarily can control. All we can control is the job we do and being as thorough as we possibly can. Right. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Lee Wilkins, professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State University, and Rebecca Sinderbrand, who is a political editor at The Washington Post. We are talking about uh, the media and the media's coverage of uh, 2016, the, the presidential election, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, uh, some of the other candidates. What has the media been doing? How has the how has the coverage helped inform voters, or has it not informed voters as well as it should? Uh, this week, uh, we need you to to respond to us on Facebook and on Twitter. Go to the WDET page on Facebook or hashtag us on Twitter at Detroit, uh, hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, we'll get your comments uh, going into the conversation. Uh, uh, and uh, Lee, uh, here's a here's a comment from Judith on Facebook. There's little coverage of positions on on issues. It's all about the showmanship of Trump and getting as many hits online as possible. As the president of CBS said, Trump is damn good for business, and the money is rolling in. That's it. Corporate greed rules. So a very cynical view of how the press has performed there from from Judith. But I'm curious how you. Uh, would 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 grade the media even uh, at this point in in the coverage so far of all of these things issues candidates uh, truth versus uh, versus untruth I mean there's a lot to there's a lot to do there, it seems like there's a lot more to do for reporters than than typically how how are they doing. Reporters are juggling a lot of balls, and I think that Judith's comment is in many ways right on, but I don't think it's exclusively about this election. Uh, The research shows that going back into the mid-1980s, journalists developed what we now call horse race journalism, or the notion that the most important story is not the stand that a candidate takes on any particular issue, the most important story is who's ahead. And that has been part of our coverage of the way we have covered politics for at least the last 30 to 40 years. I don't think this election cycle is any different. Many of the stories that lead national television newscasts or on the front page of the Washington Post or are displayed prominently at blogs, for example, 528, are all about what the polls say. 
what we have done as a profession is we have we've done two things. We've said if you really want to know about somebody's policy, we're gonna we're gonna write about it, but we're also gonna put it up on the web. And what that requires is an active reader or an active watcher, or an active listener to go and find that. The candidates themselves, also being pretty savvy, have their own websites where they will give you, in some cases, again, Trump is an exception, but Hillary Clinton certainly is not. You want to know what her policy on child care is? Go to HillaryClinton.com and you'll see it laid out for you in great detail. I think in some sense, journalists have said, well, since the candidates are doing this and we can't do this with every story, we're going to sort of pick the policy issue of the day and not remind our readers or viewers or listeners that, you know, two weeks ago, we really did this in-depth piece about um, what uh, free college tuition would actually mean in terms of the national budget or in terms of how young people would live their lives or whatever. It's hard to hold all this stuff in your head at yeah. once. If you're a journalist or if you're just a, a normal voter or somebody who's interested, there's just a fabulous amount of information out there, so much that sometimes I think we're drowning in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a comment from Suzanne on Facebook. Uh, she says, the role of the fourth estate has been glaringly cleared in this campaign has happened in the run-up to the Iraq war. Uh, there was independent journalism and investigative stories, and they are out there now, but there is so much noise from the bigs that it's drowning it out, as is social media. How can we catch up? How can we expand the role? Because it's vital to our democracy. Where would we be by now if we never had Fox News? Would we have had a normal and non-destructive GOP, really, really interesting uh, sort of twist on all of those questions there from from Suzanne. Uh, Rebecca Sinderband, uh, uh, talk about how uh, we, we've got a, a commenter who says uh, on Twitter that that the Post once ran 10 negative stories about uh, Bernie Sanders on one day while mass media reported on every single Trump controversy. And I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that's not. Uh, that's not accurate. I it's can't. actually not. You know, we had one of our <laughs> one of our reporters actually went when that happened and um, gathered even more. I guess you would call them positive headlines from yeah. the exact same period. People will see what they want to see, and this is again kind of a function of it. when you're looking at what's happening right now in terms of politics. Um, if you are someone who is on either side of the spectrum troubled by what you see, you can't understand how people could possibly support Donald Trump or can't understand how people could possibly support Hillary Clinton, given all the information that is out there. It's very understandable that, you know, the easier kind of way to go with this is to say all we have to do is either fix or replace um, the couple of hundred people who cover the campaign full time. The more complicated um, problem or issue would be if people out there, millions and millions of people, either don't want to read the coverage or they read the coverage and they don't believe it or they read it <laughs> and they believe it, but they don't really care about what it has to say. Right. Um, and that's a, a much tougher problem to address. Um, and it, it's a, a scarier problem, I think, for a lot of people. So it's easier to focus on the problems of the media. But in a sense, the media, of course, is a very difficult word to use because we're talking about such disparate outlets across the spectrum. We're talking about everything from cable news outlets to newspapers to wire services to websites. But if you're going to talk about the media as an entity, it's much easier to focus on those problems than to focus on whatever problems there may be with in the electorate as a large. Yeah, 
Yeah. All right. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about how the media are covering the presidential election. And we want to hear from you, especially Facebook. Go to Facebook on the WDET page. Uh, tell us what you think about what the what job the media are doing this cycle or go to Twitter and hashtag us at Detroit Today and uh, do the same. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, and we'll keep Lee Wilkins and Rebecca Cinderband with us. Stay with us on Detroit Today. WDET brings Detroit to you. News that affects you and the music you love. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We are talking this hour about the 2016 presidential campaign and the media's role in that campaign. How are the media doing covering Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? How did they do covering Bernie Sanders and the other uh, hopefuls in the GOP primaries? Lots of discussion and criticism about the media's role here. That's not unusual. But of course, we have an unusual cycle. We have an unusual candidate on the Republican side, and he poses unusual challenges to members of the media in trying to do their jobs. Uh, this week, uh, if you want to join us, uh, you got you, had, you need to go to a Facebook, uh, WDET's Facebook page, and put your comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today uh, to tell us what you think about what the media are doing, how they are doing uh, with the coverage of this really extraordinary campaign. My guests are Lee Wilkins, a professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State University, and Rebecca Senderbend, a political editor at the Washington Post. Uh, Lee, this, this question about journalists' obligation to check to check uh, you know falsehoods from from candidates when they come out and not to let them get away with uh, just saying it and then coming even coming back later uh, to try to check that that's going to become more important in the next few weeks as we start the debates uh, the, the the debate moderators are going to be under a lot of pressure to try to to try to suss out truth, I think, uh, in, in the middle of these things. And that's really not the role that a lot of the, the moderators who end up doing this think they're supposed to play or feel comfortable playing because it, it, it's always going to seem like you're favoring one side or another. I, I have said I would not moderate uh, any of these debates for a million dollars. And I moderate lots of debates here locally in uh, Detroit and in the state of Michigan. Uh, and it's always difficult. This seems like an impossible challenge. It seems like a no-win situation for the journalists who will sit in those chairs. It's a, it's a terrible situation for the journalists who, who sit in those chairs. Let me go back and give a brief history lesson because there are some things that those of us who do this today in the classroom or as you do, Stephen, know. Uh, this goes back to the early 1950s when Eugene McCarthy gave a very famous speech where he accused 206 people in the U.S. State Department of being members of the Communist Party. Right. He held up a piece of paper. We reported it. We splashed it in headlines all over the place. What we didn't know was that that piece of paper was blank. But there is a professional memory here. <laughs> and one of the things we learned about that is 
if your mother says she loves you, check it <laughs> check out. Check it out. We always say that. <laughs> we, always, we always say that. Um, Ronald Reagan did much the same thing. He came up with apocryphal stories that when journalists tried to track back to the particular welfare mother or whoever it was, we couldn't really ever find that person. I think that what's different now is, especially in a debate context, as a journalist, what you want to do is you want to show, not tell. If we were quick and if we had big computers, when uh, Donald Trump, for example, says, I was always against the war in Iraq, we could punch a button that would have the video clip (laughs) of him saying something opposite and say, here you are, here's what you said. In a debate context, because those rules are agreed to in advance by the candidates, they're very rigid. There is no opportunity to do that sort of fact-checking. So what happens is we do it the day after or the days after. Or in the Republican debates and in the Democratic debates that were earlier this year, if you logged on to the New York Times, if you logged on to the Washington Post, they were running real-time fact checks as part of blogs. So you had this split screen where you had the candidate saying whatever the candidate was saying, and then you had a reporter on the other half of the screen trying to, as best he or she could, fact check what what's there. Um, that takes a lot of attention to pay attention to that. Sure. As a as a as a reader, watcher, listener, whatever I was at that point, um, I was. I was tired by the time I got done watching that because I'd been watching multiple screens and listening on the radio and, and doing that sort of stuff. But it's a very difficult work, particularly because many of these claims are nuanced. So it depends on which set of figures at what point in time you say you're accessing to support your claims. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca Senderbren, talk about how <clears throat> the preparation for covering these debates might look different this time because uh, uh, true squatting has become such a, uh, a vital part of the of the of the coverage so far. I would imagine that just as this has been a different campaign, uh, the Washington Post is preparing for very different debates and different obligations to be able to 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 sort of give people a real feel of what actually is happening at them. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, I mean. Just kind of to circle back for a second, I'm just putting in a plug for my former employer, CNN, um, who's done a fantastic job, I think, this cycle with the primary season debates. And um, my former boss, Anderson Cooper, is going to be moderating, co-moderating one of the presidential debates. And one of the reasons that I think it's gone so well for them relative to perhaps some other um, news organizations that have tried to put on debates is the amount of preparation, as you pointed to, the the fact-checking in advance going through the candidates' histories and kind of figuring out, okay, what are they likely to say? What, what has their position been in the past? Um, what would represent a reversal? You know, so you're already at a moment's notice to be able to react. Um, for the moderators, that's reacting in real time on stage. Um, for the people who are covering it, uh, that is using that information in real time and posting it to the web. Months of preparation in advance, a, a great deal of re- research on pretty much any topic that's likely to arise. Um, and again, looking at their records, looking at their past positions, looking for anything that they've said in the past that doesn't add up that they might be asked to defend uh, in a debate context. Yeah. Uh, Are you assigning more reporters than normal to have to deal with the debates this time because of this sort of barrage of 
of questions about uh, truth and and fact and things like that. I mean, is it is it a bigger job than it normally than it normally would be? Well, I'll say, you know, every single cycle has been different since I started in journalism because of the way the technology has changed, the way that we've assigned people has changed every single time. You can't say that this is how we did it four years ago or this is how we did it eight years ago. And and, um, it's different now um, because of some, you know, it's just sharply changing now. It's been evolving. Um, And at the Washington Post in particular, um, it's always been vitally important and centrally important, the political coverage. Um, I think, you know, we've been fortunate enough this cycle to have more reporters covering the campaign than ever before. Um, So we have a luxury that many other news organizations in this era with kind of shrinking resources don't have, which is we can cut one of our best reporters, put him on covering, for instance, um, Donald Trump's charitable foundation exclusively for five months. This is, again, not a luxury many news organizations have. And the same goes with, you know, the fact-checking. We have a fantastic fact-checking team um, just celebrated their ninth anniversary, um, the fact-checker at the Washington Post yesterday. And yeah. um, they are working overtime, and they are ready for the debates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Uh, my guests are Lee Wilkins, a professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State University, and Rebecca Sinderbrand, who is a political editor at the Washington Post. We are talking about media coverage of the 2016 presidential election uh, and what what role the media is actually playing. What role should they play? Uh, and are they living up to that? Are they covering the candidates and the issues in a way that helps voters understand what's really going on and make their choices uh, in the voting booth. Uh, if you want to participate in the conversation this week, you need to go to Facebook, our WDET page there. Uh, also to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, we don't have phones this week, but we will bat- we'll be back on the phones next week. Uh, for now, we are an all-social media operation. Uh, Thomas on Facebook says, The media are doing the best they can. Trump, Trump needs to be held more accountable by the media and what he says and is allowed to get away with Ted Koppel, as moderator, would have nailed him in the commander-in-chief forum. I think that's a really interesting comment. Uh, Matt Lauer, uh, of course, has taken a beating for his performance there. Uh, someone like Ted Koppel, of course, very uh, respected and, and uh, uh, experienced news person, probably would have handled that differently. I wonder if you know, the, the, the question always arises, uh, Lee, it, are, are the media up to this challenge? Are, are, have we lost our way, uh, you know, in, in, in trusting someone like Matt Lauer, who's, who's not, you know, uh, this is not his work most of the time. Uh, you put him in that forum, uh, he, he may not be, he may just not be ready to do it. Why not pick uh, uh Brian Williams, for instance, or or go back and uh, get Tom Brokaw back to, to to do that. I mean, these are some of the questions I think a lot of viewers and readers are asking. I want to refer back to one of the very smart comments that I think came in over the web. I think the Lauer decision was a decision about ratings. I think it was a decision about money. I do not think it was a decision about news. Having said that, wow, that's I, a pretty strong. That's it a pretty is. strong indictment. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Having said that, I have watched Matt Lauer enough over the years to know that I have seen him handle some political stuff pretty well. Sure, I've seen him ask what I at least thought were tough 
pertinent questions and to do it kindly. So I think you have a confluence of factors. And I, I have to say, having done some of this, it requires that you eat steak for breakfast, drink lots of caffeine and be hyper alert because and even then you're going to miss you're going to miss stuff. <laughs> right. it, it's a very difficult job. But I, I think the network picked Lauer and the candidate agreed. We need to keep in mind this is a two way negotiation here yeah. uh, because they thought that that he would bring viewers in. And I think that Matt Lauer had a particularly bad night, even for him. Yeah. He, he really did. Uh, and, and I think I'm glad you said, you know, uh, this is somebody who has in the past been able to perform in those 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 kinds of roles a little better. Uh, but but again, it's it's you're up against this really odd set of circumstances. Uh, somebody like Matt Lauer, who doesn't do this full time, uh, I think, was almost certain to be overwhelmed by Donald Trump. There is a level of experience that after a certain point just kicks in, you know, whether it's riding a bicycle or I used to have a horseback riding teacher who would say it's miles in the saddle. Um, You know, Jim Lehrer had a lot of miles in the saddle dealing with people who were in one way or another not telling him the full truth or giving him the full story as he understood it. He also had a lot of practice at going around reframing questions. My favorite person who did that, it was Tim Russert. Uh, when I teach interviewing, I have a Tim Russert interview with George Bush, where he asked George Bush essentially the same question eight different times right. over the course of half an hour. Yeah. That is a skill that only that journalists learn only by having to practice by it. By doing it, yeah. And to do it on national television <laughs> is just exceptionally difficult. I don't want to make excuses for Mr. Lauer. I do want to acknowledge it was a hard job in a tough place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Amanda on Facebook, really critical of the media for not covering third-party candidates the way she thinks uh, they should. She says uh, the media did not cover Bernie until forced to. Uh, we want to hear about policy, but also proposed policy of Jill Stein and Gary Johnson. Rebecca Senderben, talk about how uh, third-party candidates get any sort of air in uh, in an election like this where the major party candidates are so dominant and where you have one major party candidate who is sucking up a lot of media attention. Talk about Jill Stein and and Gary Johnson. What kind of coverage are they getting in the post? Sure. Well, you know, just kind of circling back for a sec, you know, speaking as a a member of a news organization that has spent more money than we'd probably care to think about, (laughs) hundreds of thousands of dollars following Bernie Sanders from the very beginning, following Jill Stein, following um, uh, Gary Johnson, not full time for um, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, but consistently um, every week we've had someone coming, going out with them. Um, Dave Weigel in particular, uh, one of our reporters has really been covering them in depth. Um, One of the challenges, of course, um, with covering them is that a lot of times um, they're not necessarily running uh, traditional campaigns in the sense of when you ask them for the sorts of questions and, and try to get the sorts of information that you might be able to get from a more traditional fully staffed presidential campaign, you don't get those details from them or they don't necessarily seem prepared. We've seen this a couple of times, actually, even in just the past few days with both Gary Johnson and Jill Stein um, getting tough questions from interviewers and not quite 
seeming ready for those questions and just yeah. having bad moments. And when you're a third-party candidate who's not making it onto the debate stage, Gary Johnson was very close, but not making it onto the debate stage, those sorts of high-profile interviews, particularly television, you know, I'm not in television, but just speaking for reaching the broadest number of people, um, that is essentially your debate moment. Um, and if you're not able to take advantage of that moment, it's very difficult to break through. Um, we're also in a year when, again, it becomes, um, because it's so close in so many states, yes, there is the potential for third-party candidates to influence the results. That becomes part of the conversation, too, um, with a lot of partisans on all sides. Um, and it's impossible to remove that from the conversation. And, you know, in some ways, that's unfair. These are candidates who have very strong points of view, and they want to get their points of view out there but their role in, in influencing the outcome of the race when it's clear they are not going to be the president of the United States. There, there's no, there's, it's just not going to happen. They're not yeah. even necessarily on, on all the ballots need to be on. Um, that becomes a big part of the conversation because sure. that becomes one of the most prominent um, features of their role in the 2016 cycle. Yeah, uh, Lee Wilkins, will the third-party candidates, uh, would they be doing better if, for instance, they were included on the debate stage? I don't know if they would be doing better as an American and a political junkie. I wish there were a way that they could be included on the debate stage. I think it's really important to hear a range of voices, even though I acknowledge everything Rebecca said is 100 percent accurate. Neither of these two people are going to become president of the United States. Their chance to be influential is to influence policy. I think Bernie Sanders did that with Hillary Clinton. Uh, going a little bit back in time, I think Ross Perot did that in his independent run for, for president. He elevated the national debt to a point where the major party candidates had to talk about it. There were some policies that resulted. Whether you think those are great policies or terrible policies, it was the influence of the third party candidate. So just as a human being, just as a voter, I wish that they could be on that debate stage. But as a journalist, and particularly with what Rebecca said, these people do not have much of a chance to influence the outcome of the general election in terms of who becomes president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Lee Wilkins, uh, uh, professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State. Rebecca Sinderman, political editor at The Washington Post. Thank you both for being here for this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, coming up next, uh, we'll transition from unpeeling the onion of how the press is covering this election to unpeeling the onion itself. What role are satirists and late night hosts playing in this cycle? Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. We've been talking this hour about the role the media have played in this year's election. Right now, we're going to pivot a little bit to talk about satire and late-night shows. Those, of course, are a big part of media coverage and have been for about uh, 20 or so years, really since uh, Bill Clinton went on to the Arsenio Hall show to play his sax, uh, really breaking the barrier between pop culture uh, and new serious news in the presidential election contest. How should the media be using humor 
to cover this election. Uh, I've got Lee Wilkins, uh, chair and uh, professor at the Department of Communications at Wayne State University, still here. And joining her now is Fred Volte, associate professor of journalism at Wayne State University, someone we've had on before to talk about uh, humor in politics. Fred, welcome to the show. Nice to be back, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, and so let's talk about this this whole uh, going on weird uh, late night shows as a presidential candidate to, to sort of boost your your standing. I uh, presume the, the, the aim here is about young people primarily who who watch those shows in larger numbers than older voters. Uh, but but it, I think there, there always comes that point where you think, have they gone too far? And of course, we recently saw Jimmy Fallon inviting Donald Trump on his show to muss his hair, uh, which I saw a lot of negative blowback to for starters. But then the blowback was to Fallon, not to Trump, uh, saying, why aren't you taking this more seriously? Fred, is that, uh, is that, are, we, are we in uh, a strange and, and unprecedented space here? We're in a strange and unprecedented <laughs> space, but it's not a space that we can't draw on some from the past. Yeah. Um, if we think back, you remember last week, a lot of the discussion about Donald Trump's appeal to black voters was whether it was an appeal to black voters or an appeal to suburban white voters who wanted to know that the candidate was talking to uh, to black voters. If you go back to Richard Nixon appearing on uh, Laugh-In, for example, mm-hmm. is Nixon trying to appeal to younger voters or is he trying to appeal to upper middle class voters who are watching younger voters. We can kind of say some of the same thing about Fallon. Um, We want to be careful. I think in a lot of cases with Arsenio, certainly with Laffin, certainly, we've been able to draw a good divide between people being comedians, people being entertainers, and then maybe in Fallon's case of expecting too much. Um, John Stewart, you might recall, was always very careful to point out that he was and this was despite some blowback from the conservative media, from the New York Post, uh, that he was doing fake news. He was not a journalist. And I think that I think maybe Fallon's not getting enough attention to his protestations that he, too, is not a journalist. And hair mussing is, is what he does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and we've lost some of the, the sort of higher points on this landscape, I feel like, with the exit of Jon Stewart uh, from, from the late landscape. And, you know, this was somebody who, through humor, was making really substantive points about people. Uh, I, I feel like uh, uh, some of the other shows that have changed uh, because of uh, host change and things like that, they've lost that edge, that part of the edge, correct? I miss John Stewart. I miss John Stewart <laughs> an awful lot. And one of the things that I go back to, and it was in response to Donald Trump's acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention, Stewart went on Colbert, I think within 24, perhaps 48 hours of that. Now, this is Colbert, the late night television talk show host. He's no longer doing his impersonation of a Fox News sure. person. And We're, having a hard time getting traction is is my sense yeah. of it. It's I, a different role for him. I don't know that he's sort of fully figured out how that's supposed to work. I, I agree, but what Stewart did was he came on and was quintessential John Stewart, and Colbert was quintessential Comedy Channel Colbert, <laughs> and it was just a marvelous one-two punch because it was sort of the 
the response, the the almost visceral response of don't tell me as an American citizen that you're the only person who can save me or can save my country. I'm an American citizen. I have a stake in this. And by the way, I'm able. Yeah. So it, it was kind of all of those things wrapped up together. One of the things that I think John Stewart did was to quote Shakespeare. He protested a little bit too much. I think John Stewart did some fabulous journalism. He did it in a way that made us laugh. But there have been many people over the ages who've done fabulous journalism that has provoked laughter. But it's it's laughter that makes you think. And I do believe that that's the role that Stewart had in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before ahead, the, I think before the break, Lee had brought up the idea of if only we had a supercomputer to dump facts into and then play them back. Um, I think what you're missing about John Stewart is that's what he did. He primarily came on at 11 o'clock at night and played back everything of the past 15 years <laughs> yeah. that, that knocked things into a cocked hat. Um, that's one of the things I think we miss most about him. And that's, you know, that's been something, um, if we think about political journalism coming in two channels, like over your headphones, right? One channel is always going to be the ones and zeros. Uh, 16-15 was the score of the football game. The other channel is the context that allows you to think whether 16-15 to 15 is good news, bad news, great comeback, sign of the future, everything like that. Uh, Stewart, I think, was an expert at providing that context in a way that turned things that looked disparate, things like the um, the stream of fascinating evidence that comes out of uh, Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's new spokesman, for example, um, and turning them into a context that allows people to make sense of it. And that's, um, I think we're missing that a great deal. I think the uh, probably in recent times, the loss of Larry Wilmore from late night TV is even even scarier. <laughs> um, I remember that uh, early in Trevor Noah's time, he had announced very proudly that he too would be fighting the war on BS. I think Larry Wilmore was actually the boots on the ground yeah, in that yeah. war. Yeah, I proved it during the uh, correspondence dinner where that was, uh, he got a really interesting reaction from folks in the room and around the country uh, to oh, a much, much more direct uh, sort of attack on on the things that we sort of assume are true but, but maybe are not. Uh, I want to talk a little about satire, uh, which I think is in a different space uh, than, than what we have been talking about, the idea of trying to lampoon uh, mm -hmm. the presidential candidates or the process or the issues. That also seems like it is in a strange and sort of unprecedented space this, this time because uh, you have a candidate, uh, a major party candidate, who is himself sort of a walking lampoon, I suppose, uh, in, in some terms. And so it makes it harder to... I think to find that right tone for jokes or satire when the whole thing seems more like a satire itself. I think in a way that's one of the things that we miss most about Colbert as Colbert is that he's really a very different kind of satire from or let, let's he's not necessarily different from there's two or three different kinds of satire. There's kind of a happy ending, a gentle fun satire, and there's you might think a weightier or um elbow in the ribs kind of satire, uh, in which in Colbert's case, it's really hard to tell the message from from the player, from the medium. Yeah. Um, he was somebody, you know, who he was was as much of a satire as, as the events he presented. He didn't stand off from them in that way. Interestingly enough, that actually does kind of affect the way people process the information they're getting. So there's actually different kinds of political learning that go on when somebody like Colbert is, is in his persona. Um, 
that doesn't mean it's better or worse or funnier or less funny. Uh, what it does suggest is that it's a, maybe it's a part of the mix, a part of the way of helping us think about news that we don't have as much. I think maybe he'd be better. Um, did you happen to see Doonesbury on Sunday? I did not. Too bad. Uh, there was, well, if you watched uh, Trevor Noah last night, there was a brief interruption of a guy with orange hair saying, huge, where's my daughter? <laughs> and that's a very, very simple and very, a very, really not very funny Trump parody of what <laughs> Gary Trudeau could do. He had basically an airliner with people walking in, checking the overheads, avoiding eye contact. And you began to realize that the, the pilot's voice on the intercom was actually Donald Trump. And it was all the little Trump things. It was the flying. I'm going to be so beautiful at the flying. <laughs> that really helps you put Trump and right. the blacks, Trump and the Hispanics into that kind of context. And that sort of satire, I think, is really effective in uh, the larger context. It's not just something to laugh at. It's the funny stuff in combination with the this is passing for policy Right. Stuff. I mean, there's this sort of a nuance that's required now because uh, you've got this sort of garishly uh, silly candidate. Uh, you can't just sort of mock. You have to sort of uh, penetrate and and recast it in a way that, that, that draws out a seri- more much. serious point. Sure. Yeah. And, and also, I think one of the other things that, that the good satirists do effectively is to make fun of more things at once. Um, the great the Sarah Palin, Joe Biden debate on Saturday Night Live, if mm-hmm. you remember, mm-hmm. I've got some zingers where I call you Joe, is actually, <laughs> it's making fun of journalism. It's making fun of our obsession with, with process at the extent of substance as much as it's making fun of Sarah Palin. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Lee. I think the very difficult thing about satirizing Trump is you, in the process of satirizing Trump, you risk making fun and ridiculing his supporters. And I want to go back and reemphasize something that Fred has said, because there is, it's a fine line, but it's a very noticeable line between satire and ridicule. And the one thing you don't want to do is get on a big platform and ridicule a whole group of people. And I think that is what is made Donald Trump particularly difficult to satirize, is every time you get close to satirizing Trump, you realize that, but the people he says he's speaking for, these are the people that I don't want to, I don't want to satirize, I don't want to ridicule, I don't want to discount them. They, regardless of, of who they vote for, politically, they deserve to be heard. They have, they speak for many people who don't agree with them in terms of presidential candidate, but do agree with them in terms of what they're saying. I think this election cycle has been particularly difficult that way. Yeah, It's, yeah. it's fair to say, I think, that, that they deserve to be heard and that one thing journalism doesn't really do well is find voices that don't sound like they belong in the same room. Uh, journalism doesn't do well with people who think it's perfectly normal to own guns and go hunting after Thanksgiving dinner, for example. Sure, sure. But uh, at the same time, you know, the right to be heard isn't the right to uh, to punch people in the face or the right to be let out. And I think done well, satire is one of those things that allows a candidate, for example, to make the distinction between the right of, of underserved people to be heard and the right of, of people who have a mad on to punch somebody in the face as being let, let out by the cops. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you guys uh, both for being here. Uh, I wonder if... Um I wonder if the debates will will inspire a little better satire than we've seen so far. 
uh, they'll have they'll have lots of Donald Trump footage and even Hillary Clinton footage to to work with. So, uh, Fred Volte, associate professor of journalism at Wayne State University, Lee Wilkins, uh, chair and uh, professor at the Department of Communications at Wayne State. Thank you both for being here on Detroit today. No thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Uh, remember our un fundraiser still going on. We need to reach that goal of two hundred eighty-one thousand dollars. And if we do by this weekend, then we will not interrupt programs like Detroit Today next week to try to get to that. So uh, help us out. Go to the WDET.org page and donate for the first time or renew your support. Keep shows like Detroit like Today on the air, morning edition, all things considered. Uh, We really appreciate the help. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. This is WDET 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station.